type one has kind of brought out, it's brought me out of my shell and it's made me more confident. And I think that I love my body so much more now than I ever, ever did before because of, I know what it's doing at all times and what it's capable of. Because I lived many years on the negative side of this disease and it didn't help me at all. And I took up running and cycling and really, you know, that, that helped with my mindset and uh, really pushed me forward to uh, my life with this disease. And, you know, I call it my best frenemy. If you're going to talk about strength and resilience, I mean, I'm able to go and teach a 60 minute class and make it happen. Those are the only times I have those glimmers of like super proud, puffy chest, like I'm type one and I can do this. Oh, hi. Thanks so much for tuning in. I'm Walt Drennan, and you're listening to Ask Me About My Type 1, the Q&A podcast all about type 1 diabetes. Hey, type 1s and nuns. Welcome back for part 4, the epic final installment of the Ask Me About My Type 1 season 3 finale special, the series. I've come at you with a lot this past week, and during a series that was already completely different, I'm bringing a finale series finale that is differenter still. On this episode of Ask Me About My Type 1, I bring you the live recording of my Connected in Emotion virtual slipstream workshop, Communicating the Type 1 Experience. It's where I take a deep dive into what telling your Type 1 story can do through what I've learned over the course of hosting the show, as well as my own experiences living with Type 1 for the past 20 years. And in true Ask Me About My Type 1 fashion, I have Type 1 guests help me get the conversation going with their experiences telling their Type 1 stories. Thank you again to my three amazing volunteer panelists. Friend of the show, Jordan, and new friends, Katie and Sarah. This was my very first workshop, and I think you'll definitely be able to hear the nerves in my voice throughout the whole thing, but all in all, I was really happy with how it all came together in the end. And a big thank you to all of you who were able to attend and participated in the discussion at the end. If you're looking for an easy way to support the show, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you're listening to this podcast. And especially if it's on iTunes. Just click on that fifth star and let me know what you think about the show. It's an easy way to help me out and get the show noticed on the charts by type 1s and nuns like you, so we can keep the conversation going. Other ways you can support the show are following the Ask Me About My Type 1 Instagram page. That's at Ask Me About My Type 1. There, you can get updates on upcoming episodes, check out the podcast website and merch shop, and even feel free to DM me about being a guest on a future episode. All right, everybody. Thank you all again so much for tuning in. Now, here's the episode. Okay, we still might have some people uh, joining over the next few minutes, but I think we're ready to get started. So I'm Libby Rome, and I'm your room captain for today, and we have uh, Nick Reed with Tech Support. So uh, I want to welcome everyone to this session. This is the Communicating the Type 1 Experience Telling Your Story Workshop with Walt Dredd. Walt was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes in 2000 at the age of 12. Despite having T1D for over half his life, Walt didn't really come to terms with it until after completing a cross-country charity cycling tour in 2012. Cycling over 4,000 miles from South Carolina to California in 80 days with no type 1 complications made Walter realize that the only thing holding him back from doing everything he wanted was himself. 
He's been cycling ever since and completed a second cross-country charity cycling tour from Maryland to Oregon in 2014. In 2017, he was a team coordinator for Bike Beyond. So with that, I'd like to turn it over to Walt. Thank you, Libby. Hello, everybody. Thank you so much for joining me for my TED Talk. I mean, my virtual slipstream. Like Libby said, I'm Walt Trennan. And I also, in addition to all the things that she said, I also host a podcast called Ask Me About My Type 1. And on there, I explore the idea of communicating the Type 1 experience and how we can better, we as a community and myself as an individual can better do that for people that don't have Type 1 to kind of include them in the conversation that we always have and make them better able to support us kind of in the long run. And that's what this workshop is all about. My story, so like Libby said, I did a couple bike rides and those were the moments where I really found out that my ability to communicate my experience with type one was really lacking. On those two charity rides, I was the only type one in teams of 30. So I was the only type one biking along every day and I had a hard time doing it because like we all know, doing things with type one is hard, especially active things. But when I was trying to communicate that with my teammates, I fell short, I feel. My first ride, I was really reluctant to even tell them about it. I did because I felt like I had to, because I felt like it was kind of a dangerous situation. So I didn't want to put them in any awkward uh, positions. So I told them, but I didn't really explain it. And up until that point, for those first 12 years of my type one, I don't feel like I put a whole lot of effort into knowing my type one. So at the point where I had all these people that I could tell about it, I didn't know how. So after that ride, I realized that I couldn't hide from my type one. So like up into those first few weeks, I was really reluctant to acknowledge it. Everybody else was doing so great. And I was kind of lagging behind. I was one of the slower riders and I didn't want to admit that was because of my type one. I kept on trying to compare myself to these other people that didn't have type one. And it was just a kind of, I was just kind of kicking myself uh, for those first two weeks. And then I finally kind of had a, you know, come to Jesus moment, I guess you could call it, and realized that I needed to uh, accept my type one and acknowledge what it could, what it did to me, and then try to avoid those situations. So trying to be proactive instead of reactive. And I ended up having a much better time of it. I was able to get closer with my teammates and realize that I was different from them. And that's why things are going to be different for me for the ride. And it's not really because of my type one, but it was because of my attitude towards it. So after that 2012 bike ride, I was still having a lot of trouble getting my foot in the door in the type one community, so to speak. So eventually I did another bike ride, had a similar experience, but I was a lot better with my type one. I felt like I had a little bit more, not control over it, but I managed it better. And I was a bit more open with my teammates, still not like hundred percent, but I was better. So I was, I was learning. So I was figuring it out as I went. And then in 2017, Bike Beyond, like Libby mentioned, is actually a bike ride that was made up of a team of entirely type ones. I helped put it together and I really wanted it to be an entire team of type ones, 20 in this case, Jordan is actually listening and he was on the team with me. And I really wanted to like help share the experiences that I had biking across the country with the type one community, because I felt like I learned so much about myself, my type one. And it really, I felt like it benefited me in a way that it could benefit others with type one. And so during that ride, I found that it was so much easier to talk about type one namely because everybody on the team had it. And there wasn't a whole lot of explaining I had to do. I didn't really have to know a whole lot about my type one. And it was, and I actually ended up learning so much more than I had in the first 17 years of my type one in those first like 10 weeks. Um, I learned about the pizza phenomenon. I had no idea what that was like prior to that. 
Um, I didn't, I'd never been in a room with more than like one or two other type ones in my entire life with type one. So 17 years before that. And so I learned a whole lot from that summer and I found that I was better able to communicate my experience when other type ones were around me for that, like, I guess, moral support, you could call it. And then right when I left, I came back, came back to Pittsburgh and I found that I was still not very good at communicating my type one to people that don't have it. So there was that roadblock of not being able to talk to people that just don't get it. And to me, that felt like it wasn't fair to them. And it also wasn't fair to me because I feel like there is a need for that kind of knowledge and that kind of experience to be shared with other people so that they can help us. And we can also help them just be more aware of the things that can happen. And so that's when the kind of the idea of the podcast came about. So I was on Instagram and I was watching a story and it was like an inter- a mock interview between an older sister and her younger sister who was diagnosed with type one. And so her older sister was like going through these questions like, so what were your symptoms like? And then the younger and the type one sister, she said, so like I was going to the bathroom a lot and then kind of like without missing a beat, the older sister asked her, pooping or peeing. And that made me laugh out loud just because it's a weird thing to say, but also because that's something that we say a lot. We always say going to the bathroom a lot. We all know what we're talking about. We all know that we're talking about going peeing a lot, but other people don't. And it's the people that don't know these things that could benefit most from knowing them. And so that's where the disconnect kind of became really apparent to me. And so with that, I came up with this idea for the podcast, Ask Me About My Type 1, where I would have both a type 1 and a type none, or a person without type 1 diabetes, like I kind of coined the phrase type none. And basically, we teach this type none everything we could about type 1 based on the questions that they had about it. And for me, it was selfishly, it made it easier for me to talk about type one with another type one there, but also had the added benefit of bringing more, you know, type one experience knowledge and just being better able to communicate that experience with a person that doesn't really have a whole lot of context for it. And so that's where the show comes from. And that's where my, I guess, passion for wanting to better communicate our experience with the greater type none world. And so with that, that's where this workshop's coming from. And actually this workshop is also, I'm going to turn it into a podcast episode. So hopefully we can open up the conversation and kind of really get to the, what I think is like the most important parts of communicating our experience and how we can better do that um, just for the people around us. And like on my show, I always have a guest and this workshop slash podcast episode is going to be no different. So I actually have a panel of guests, volunteers who help, who are going to help me explore this topic and see what we can discover within our little group here. So if you guys could introduce yourselves, Jordan, let's start with you. You're muted. Jordan, you're muted. Hey guys. (laughs) How far did you get in your your introduction? Classic. Okay. Well, hi all. I'm Jordan. I am 28 years old and I am from South Carolina. I was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes when I was just shy of my 25th birthday. So this September will be my four-year anniversary. And what brought me to the workshop is I've recorded one podcast with um, Walt and my sister before, and it's honestly my favorite podcast. And I've become quite good buds with Walt, and I just appreciate all that he does for the Type 1 community. So uh, that's why I wanted to be a volunteer, because I wanted to be a part of the awesomeness. Thank you, Jordan. And that was a, another shameless plug for the podcast. So <laughs> thank you very much. Love those. All right. Now, Katie, tell us about yourself, who you are, where you're from, how long you've had your type one, and then why'd you join the workshop? Okay. Hi, everyone. Um, 
my name is Katie. I'm from Vancouver, British Columbia, so the other side of the border. I've had type 1 for 32 years. I was diagnosed when I was 9 on my sister's 16th birthday. She has forgiven me now. And uh, what brought me to this workshop? I'm, I've developed an interest in podcasts. I took a podcast course uh, last year. So I'm in I'm finishing my education of becoming a registered dietitian. And I took a podcast course because I'm a former newspaper journalist. And I really believe in storytelling and um, feel there's stories everywhere. And podcasts are a great medium for those stories. So that's why I'm interested in this. Yes, I very much agree with that. Yeah, storytelling can take a lot of different forms. I chose podcasting, but I'm going to actually go over that later on in the presentation. So yeah, thank you for joining me and helping out with the panel discussion. Sarah, introduce yourself. Tell us where you're at, where you're from, uh, what you're doing, and why you chose to join the, the show. Cool. So yeah, I'm Sarah. I'm from outside of Boston. Uh, well, I live there. I'm not from there. So, uh, and I've had diabetes for eight years now. And I, well, I'm like, wait, hold on. Da, da, da. I decided to join this one because I met Walt at the first main slipstream, the first Northeastern slipstream, um, when he came to speak where, oh, he came to the slipstream, but then he also came to speak for Bike Beyond and we um, got to preview Bike Beyond. And that was probably one of the coolest experiences. Plus slipstream was slipstream. But I also just, I think that I, I connect with Walt in the sense of I struggle with communicating my story, especially with people who don't have type one. And obviously we all have that comfort zone. So I kind of was like, you know what? I think I need to like learn from other people in this way. So that's kind of what the main thing that brought me here was just being able to like have the meeting of the minds kind of thing. So yes. excited about it. Yeah, thank you. It's definitely a meeting of the minds. And, I, and like uh, Libby mentioned, there's gonna be a kind of an open portion towards the end. And I do, everybody that's listening, if you could kind of like uh, hold on to your questions or like keep them, save them to the end, write them down somewhere so that you have them so you can ask them. Cause I do want to get like a conversation going. I couldn't open it up to everybody cause there's a lot of people here, but the three here will be our representatives and then we can have a more in-depth discussion at the end. All right. So what do I mean by the story? You're telling your story. So while I was putting this workshop together, I kind of went back and forth between telling the type one story and calling it telling your type one story or telling your story. So, because I feel like in our community, the, the type one story is, it has kind of a bit a different connotation within, within our own community and then outside of it. So just to kind of give a basic understanding of what I mean by story and type one stories are just basically accounts of past events in someone's life or in the evolution of something. So in this, you know, work frame, I think of a story as your entire life, not just bits and pieces of it, but the entirety of it. I think type one evolves with us. It's not something that stays the same throughout our entire lives. And again, it's a forever condition. So it's going to change with us. We change. So it's definitely going to change with us. And that's something that took me a long time to realize, I think. And I'd like to help people, you know, avoid those roadblocks. So that's where I'm coming from that. And then in the type one community, the, like the discussion around type one, I feel is a really adversarial. So it's kind of us against type one, which I feel can be a little confusing for people outside of the community. The, the idea of like type one warriors or like fighting type one or beating type one, it's unnecessarily adversarial, like I was saying. And so it kind of gives the idea for people on the outside looking in 
there are those of us who are winning and those of us who are losing. So like it gives us, I think internally we kind of understand what those things mean. Like it's, it's not really a fight. We're trying to find a cure and we manage it every day. And we all realize how difficult that is and hard it is and the nuances behind that. But when you're looking from the outside in, it's harder to see that. And I think diabetes itself, not even just type one, but diabetes in whole has a really specific connotation to the greater public. And if you kind of put that in, in addition to the adversarial kind of um, language that we use, it makes it seem that it kind of reinforces a lot of those in, incorrect misconceptions and stereotypes that we did this to ourselves, that is something that we could change if we just wanted to. So like that whole idea of winning and losing. And I think that's something that we as a society in the US has a very adversarial kind of fighting mentality when it comes to sickness. So for example, cancer, that's a little bit more understandable, the fight against cancer. And even within the cancer community, they know that losing and winning is, it doesn't mean exactly what it means to, in the, like the truer sense of winning and losing. But when you kind of use those winning and losing ideas and concepts to a, with a chronic illness, it kind of creates more problems than I think it solves. It makes it seem like we're losing or winning. Some of us are doing better than others. And really, like I said, it's uh, type one's a journey. You have to figure it out as you go and it's going to change. You're not going to be able to uh, address or manage your type one the same way today as you will next week, next month, next year. So there's an evolution to our diabetes management and our understanding of it and our acceptance of it. So I feel like our language could better reflect that. And uh, like a big thing, I think in the language that we use is that type one doesn't define us. So like, the, again, kind of reinforcing that stereotype that or that adversarial relationship with it. And I think I kind of held on to that concept really, really hard for my first 12, 15 years. I was very reluctant to be even say the word diabetes. Like I, I still have a really hard time saying the word diabetes because of the connotations that it has. And I didn't want people to judge me based on those assumptions that were incorrect, but what did I know? I was a kid, I was 12 years old. I didn't know any type ones for the longest time. And I really was reluctant to be defined by my type one. And I wish, this is something I did like a couple of years ago. And I wish somebody had done this for me back then was basically just look up the type, the definition of type one. And you can do that, anybody can Google it. And the one that I found is a chronic condition in which pancreas produces literal no insulin. That definition doesn't include anything about me. So it doesn't include my bike rides, doesn't include that I grew up overseas, that I speak Spanish, that I have curly hair. Like it doesn't define me. The definition of type one has nothing to do with me. So that there kind of makes me realize that I can't be defined by type one. Type one is, I am so much more than type one, but at the same time, type one is part of me. So there's, there's a living with type one as opposed to living against it kind of thing that I think our story should include. So that's, so when I say story, that's what I mean by story. It's living with your type one and understanding what that means to you. So basically how it interacts with your life, but also how your life interacts with your type one. So that's a much kind of broader sense of it. And I think it, it's something that people outside of our community can understand a little bit better. It, it allows for the nuances and complexities that living with type one is. So now I'm gonna move on to our panel and ask them my first question. As of right now, like sitting here today, like where would you say your relationship with your type one is? And again, we have kind of like a really kind of mixed bag of uh, lengths. So I've had my type one for 20 years. Sarah's, she said eight, Katie 30, and Jordan is our diabetist of the group, or at least the panel. And I, I, I think those things affect it. So like Jordan, we'll start with you. Where do you think you are right now with your type one? And how would you explain that? I think that right now my relationship with type one 
it still in a sense is exciting, which sounds very weird, but I think that I'm still every day obviously is new for all of us, but I feel that every day I'm still learning and I'm still trying to find my groove and I'm still using my Instagram page to make friends and, you know, I'm making hats and stickers and, you know, I'm just like trying to find like things about it to boost my day instead of looking at all of my numbers and the crappy days. Sometimes I feel like I'm still on this high in a sense of I have this new toy to play with and every day is new and exciting and it like throws me for a whirl and it gives me something to think about instead of the bad things. So I don't know. I think my relationship with type one right now is still very new and I haven't experienced diabetes burnout yet. I've experienced bad days where I get a little overwhelmed, but overall, I still feel that I am in such a positive mind space. And I think that in a way I'm fighting the negativity. I don't, I don't think it's necessarily like hit me that this is forever. Like right now, like I said, it's kind of like a new toy. Well, like four years is like a long time to do something, but like with diabetes, like every day for everyone is always new. So for someone that's four years, three and a half years into it, I still feel like I'm finding the good in it. I'm finding the friends that I'm meeting, the connections I'm making. I'm pushing myself to do more than I've ever done before, just specifically because I want to show people that I can. And so, yeah, my relationship with diabetes right now is like, I kind of like having it around. It's made me a better me in a sense. It's made me realize the strength that I have. And it's made me realize that there's a lot of really cool people in this world. And um, I think diabetics are like definitely my favorite people now. (laughs) Yeah. And that's something, there is a positivity to it. And I think the person, someone, I had a conversation with somebody about type one and the, the kind of person they felt like it turned them into. But I feel like type one doesn't really do anything to us. It more so allows our stronger characteristics to come out. And then that's where you get the people that are more type A and they try to kind of like strangle, you know, wrestle their type one. Whereas people that are just kind of naturally more positive and try to find the good in things, they tend to like gravitate towards the more positive sides of type one. So it's definitely, and again, that just kind of adds to the greater story. So the more stories that we have, the more people that we can include and the more, uh, the, the more complete of a picture we can paint of the type one experience. So yeah, thank you, Jordan. Katie, what is your relationship with your type one, would you say? So it's very different than it was many years ago. Uh, I think, um, being so young with diagnosed with type one, um, I went through a lot of challenges. Uh, right now, though, I would say doing pretty well. Uh, you know, I have my ups and downs, of course, but um, you know, I, I've learned a way to live with this disease. And like Jordan, I like to look at the positives more than the negatives because I lived many years <laughs> on the negative side of this disease, and it didn't help me at all. I was I was pretty miserable for a lot of those years and. Um, once I started to just change my view on things and, and I took up running and cycling and really, you know, that, that helped with my mindset and uh, really pushed me forward to accept this disease, uh, my life with this disease. And, you know, I call it my best frenemy. I've met a lot of fantastic people with it and, you know, yeah, we, we are some pretty incredible people. And yeah, I think, 
think we're doing good right now. Definitely. I like that. Thank you. Sarah, what do you think? Where are you with your type one now? So you gave us these questions last night to kind of like look over and I totally appreciate that because it definitely made me think because nobody really asked me these questions. I feel like it's slightly a loaded question because as a person who was diagnosed later in life, I still, and even though I've been diagnosed for eight years now, I still have this like you always kind of like, you look at food and you're like, I used to be able to eat this and not have to give that much insulin. Like, or like not, I didn't have to give it. I used to be able to eat this. Like I just used to be able to eat this. And like, especially with quarantine now, like you, you want to eat like all of the baked goods and you can't really. And my four-year-old wants all of them. And I'm like, if I eat one more brownie, like it's going to be bad. But I don't know. I think um, I've been through some really hellish medical oddities and weird things over the past even like eight years I mean my diabetes was just like a like most of us like a random thing a random happenstance that was triggered by a health incident so I I think I'm at this point where like I'm still recovering mentally from all of that trauma that I'm finally at a point where I'm like all right cool I have type one like here we are and I've started to now shift my mindset into more of an empowered state um, rather than feeling like I'm just like living and surviving. I've always, I've always kind of like not let type one, you know, I've always let it kind of be in the back burner, but I'm kind of at this point, letting it just ride along with me, like in the passenger seat. And I think that's made me a little bit stronger because I haven't, I don't disregard it, but I don't also let it take, take the driver's seat. So I think I think it's all, it's kind of been a, it's been a back and forth because it has been in the back, in the back seat for a pretty long time. And I think I've finally given it a chance to, to be, be there with me, but not uh, take over. So it's been, it's, it's been better in the past couple of years, but I definitely had a, had a point where I just kind of forgot about it for a while and um, just let it ride. But I think it's, it's better. It's better now, better mindset. Absolutely. That's good to hear. Yeah. And I think it is also important to have those, I don't want to say negative stories, but more realistic stories. So like people, especially for people that are diagnosed later in life, so like in their 20s and 30s, because that experience is very different than for me, who was diagnosed at 12. Like I have a hard time conceptualizing that. It's like I've been thinking about forever since I was 12. And I don't know what it's like to not have type one kind of like somewhere in the back burner, whereas people that had no idea that it existed and then were suddenly kind of slapped in the face with it, that's a big deal. That can be traumatic, like you said. And and it kind of depends on a lot of factors that we don't even like acknowledge or can like really think about, I think, like medical teams. Certain medical teams are way better than others. Some people have much more positive experiences than uh, other people do. And so those, I think those stories are important to have as reference because, so we talked about the the what as in the story, but like, why is that important? What's the point of communicating our stories better? And I think the whys are where, obviously the the why is an important thing to acknowledge and know, because the better we understand why we're doing this, the more easily we can do it and the better we'll want to become to, to be able to do it. All right, so while I was like putting this together, I was looking, I was looking for a picture of the galaxy. So basically trying to show how all of us are in this together in a sense, like we're all on this planet together. We're all kind of connected to a certain degree. And so our experiences can definitely influence and, you know, inspire other people. And so, but then I found this Carl Sagan quote that kind of think encompasses the sentiment behind this. And so somewhere something incredible is waiting to be known. And Carl Sagan, a lot of you probably know he was, he's a famous cosmologist, you know, astronomer, 
And he was the guy that started the SETI program, the Search for Intelligent Life um, or Extraterrestrial Intelligent Life. And so his big idea was to find greater truths and then relate them to, you know, the average Joe, because he was like, he did very high level, like astrophysics and astrobiology, but he wanted to be able to share that stuff, the greater truth, the cosmological truths that he was looking for with, you know, everyday people and kind of package it in a way that they would understand it better so that they can get the benefit of those greater truths and, you know, and whatever inspiration they might gain from them. And so I think we can do the same thing, but with our stories. So I was able to divide the entire world into these three types of people. And so there's different reasons why our stories are important to each of these. So let me just go through them really quick. So for the type one world, our community, I think it's important to have these stories or have access to these stories because there's more of us every day. We're the only club that people keep on, you know, getting put into without having to sign up for it. And so like Sarah said, her experience was a little bit more traumatic because she was older. She was probably had a really clear vision of her life and what it was going to look like. And then type one kind of like comes in and slaps her in the face and, you know, it just changes everything. And I think our stories can definitely help people in those situations. And that kind of goes on to how diverse our community is. So type one doesn't really dis uh, discriminate. So, so it's hard to kind of find a story that encompasses every single one. So instead of just find every single person in our community, because there's, you know, African-American um, type ones and African type ones and English type ones and people in South America. And so all of these different experiences, just life experiences, cultural experiences have an effect on type one and how that how they choose to interact with it. So I think the more stories that we can add to like the greater discussion, the better we can be able to welcome all these people that are coming in, whether they like it or not. And the more examples of ways that they can live or ways that they can choose to live, the better for them. Because again, at least as it is now in the US, the medical experience when you're diagnosed is very different from when you're a kid to when you're over 18 to when you're in your 50s, when you're in your 40s, there's a lot of misunderstanding around it. So the more information they have right at, the, at their fingertips at the beginning, the better, I think. And so moving on to why I think it's important for type nuns to be part of this, basically there are way more of them than there are of us. Like, that's just kind of like the fact of it. We can definitely wait around till everybody in the entire world has type one, but that's going to take a long time and I'd rather not. Um, it's also kind of morbid to wish the entire world would have type one so that we could feel normal for a change. But in terms of that, just having more type nuns in the world, the better they, the, the more chances they have to connect with our story, I think the better for us in terms of just support and general like understanding of what we go through. I think it also allows for people to help us in ways that we don't even know they can. So like it can inspire somebody to, you know, I guess, uh, cross your fingers to find a cure. So like somebody that has no connection with type one, but for whatever reason, here's one of our stories and they happen to be like a molecular biologist and they think of this, you know, uh, eureka idea. It's like, oh, well, if you just do this and like put this carbon over here and this hydrogen over there, we have a cure for type one. That's kind of like the wish my pie in the sky wish idea, but there are other ways that people can help like coders. They can find the perfect algorithm to figure out pizza for us. And so we can plug it into our PDMs or our like pumps and then it just does everything for us. And we can definitely wait for these kinds of people to suddenly have type one and have a reason to like help us in those ways. But it's also not fair to the type one community, I think, in having and like expecting all of our solutions to be solved by ourselves. 
And so, yeah, so basically giving them stories that they can then be inspired to do things that can definitely help us. So like cures and also, you know, like management ideas, like they can definitely come up with new, newer ones and better ones. I feel like the biggest type one solutions are going to come from outside of our community, just because, again, there's more of them than there are of us. So the more that they know about our experiences, the more solutions we have in order to help them and more, I think, innovative ones, because there's probably things that we don't even notice that we go through that we just kind of got used to. And so that kind of exposure bias like makes us makes it a little harder for us to see the solutions that other people might be able to see. And in terms, and again, normalizing, it makes it easier for us to feel like uh, as part of the community as opposed to kind of being on the outside. That was something that I felt that I uh, went through a lot growing up is I always felt like I wasn't a part of the group because I had type one, because I had to think about it so much because I had to like make sure that I had my things. And if I lost it, like I had to make a big deal about it. And it was that, that bike ride that I did, those 70 days that I was on the bike trip was the first time that I actually felt normal in my 17 years of having type one. And it was because everybody got it, not even necessarily that they had type one, just that they got it. I didn't have to explain anything. It was, it just felt nice to finally have all these weird things and like things that I felt nobody understood to have them understood by other people that weren't me. And so the last, so type threes, that's kind of a phrase that I'm not the biggest fan of because I feel like it, again, it confuses the situation. So type three sounds like it's a different type of diabetes, but it's actually people in our community that helps and support us. So, but for the purposes of this presentation, I'll use the, the phrase just because it does make sense. People in our lives that help us, but don't necessarily live our lives or live, have our shared experience of type one are part of the equation, I think. And they're definitely in it. And they're, it's a very unique situation. They know a lot about type one, but they have no context as to how it feels, what it does to your body, like what it actually feels like to like forget your pump or forget your, like your supplies at home and have to like leave work. It's a very unique situation. And it's one that I think if they heard more of our stories, they could, it would help lessen their load. It's like the anxiety that they often felt. I think I, I relate to this more with parents because of how like the bigger like load that they, the, the heaviness of type one is kind of put squarely on them a lot. And so if they had a better idea of the context around type one, what it actually feels like to be high or low and kind of like the little nuances that we kind of get just living with it for years and years, they can it kind of give them a bit of a, a lighter load and maybe give them a little less anxiety and show them what their kids can do or will be able to, uh, to do eventually and like ways that they can set them up for uh, success with their type one management before they leave the house. And so that brings me to my next question. So as of right now, what would you say you've learned from your type one that you think that you wouldn't have been able to learn without it? So I th this might be a little hard depending on how long, like maybe for Katie, but where are there certain lessons that you feel like your type one has taught you um, over the years that you think that probably wouldn't have happened had you not had your type one? Jordan, let's start with you. I think when I think of this question, I kind of go back to what I was saying, what you mentioned after my last response is that type one has kind of brought out like the best in me, like my best characteristics and the things maybe that I doubted in myself or was self-conscious about having to wear my Dexcom and do insulin shots on the beach. There's so many things like you can be so nervous about. And I think that they've, it's brought me out of my shell and it's made me more confident and more comfortable in my own skin. And I think that I love my body so much more now than I ever 
ever did before because of I know what it's doing at all times and what it's capable of. So um, I feel like having type one has taught me to love myself and to give myself grace. And yeah, I think it's brought out definitely like the better side of me a hundred percent. I think I'm more loud and proud. I, you know, I'm very loud and proud, Walt, <laughs> but I think that it's made me okay with being loud and proud. I don't like shy away from it. Now I'm like, Hey, what's up? I'm here. It's me. I have diabetes. Want to learn about it? Cause like, I love talking about it. <laughs> so yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It kind of reminds me. So I feel like there is, and we have the benefit of those experiences and being inspired by our own, like, you know, living with type one. And I think that's something that we can share with other type ones, but also just people that don't have it so that they can be inspired to maybe write some sort of like a book or a screenplay for a movie or a play. And cause we have like access to these, you know, incredible no or unknowns that can inspire people to do great things. So maybe not necessarily type one related, but they can like give inspire certain experiences and certain truths that we know because we have this experience. So there's a lot of, I feel like, inspiration that we're not being allowed to kind of being expressed in our type nuns of the world because they don't know what we go through. And I feel like type one itself, the condition itself can lend itself to a lot of really beautiful truths. So like type one is ugly and it's beautiful and it's happy and sad. It's devastating and uplifting. It's really ridiculous too. It's been around for thousands of years, yet we're only kind of learning about it now in the last hundred or so. Like that's the greatest strides we've made in the condition and management have happened within the last hundred years, within the last maybe 10 years, if you want to include technology, like specifically. And I think those truths can be shared with other people and inspire them to think of greater things too. So in terms of, I like to think of type one as like very prone to like a movie or a TV show kind of thing. Like it's very dramatic and, you know, impactful. And I feel like the truths that we experience every day could definitely help inspire other people to do great things too. Not even necessarily type one related, just like life things because type one is hard, but so is life. And so I feel like type one and life mirror each other very well. And we experience a lot of it because we deal with type one and life. So there's a big a lot of inspiration I think can be had from our stories if we, and we just need to be a little bit better at sharing them and communicating them to people. And so Katie, what do you think, where would you think you are with that? Yeah. So this is a bit of a hard question for me because having it for 32 years, it's hard to remember lessons without diabetes, right? Definitely on the surface, resiliency and mental fortitude. There's so much about this disease that can really break you down but then like you always get back up again. And when you see yourself getting back up again, that's like huge positivity to be like, okay, I did that. So, you know, it's not going to break me next time, but see what I can do and see how, how much better I can do with this disease. But I think like for me, I wanted to be a writer before I got diabetes from like, I think I was six, I was telling my family, I wanted to be a writer and a doctor. And the only reason I wanted to be a doctor was because my sister wanted to be a nurse and I wanted to be her boss. But all through like school, it evolved to becoming a journalist. And then I did become a journalist and it was a fantastic career, but it was my diabetes that led me towards becoming a dietitian. And it was because when I started becoming more active and started running marathons and, and cycling, I found that there was a lack of resources for this part of our population in, in the healthcare system, at least in Canada. 
And I wanted to fill that gap. So I went back to school with this specific goal of working with active individuals who have type one. Um, and I had, I had no math. I had no science background, didn't take any of that stuff in high school because I was going to be a writer. I didn't need any of that stuff. So then, you know, like my diabetes led me towards this new career. I, I was working full time and I was pregnant and taking these online high school courses to get to a level that I could go back to school. And I, I give huge credit to the fact that I have diabetes. I would not have done this. I would not have gone into a science career without this disease. Yeah, definitely. So, and I think kind of like what you're saying, how that first bike ride that I did, it was so hard. The fact that it was so hard because of my type one was why I think I liked it so much. Because everybody else, at least to me, it seemed like they had a pretty easy time of it. And so, and like, I still know my teammates, like a lot of them never touched a bike again. Like they did their bike ride across the country. Like that's good enough for them. It's a good story to tell. But for me, it meant a lot. And the fact that I was able to do it without have, without having any complications, no, like, like ambulances were called. I didn't have to go to the hospital or anything like that, which is what I was kind of planning on. Like I was kind of set that that was going to happen. No, no need to like think that it won't. And I got through it. And it was because of that, that I think I fell in love with cycling and kept on doing it and did it two more times and wanted to share it with the type one community. So there is definitely stuff that I would have never done had I not had type one and people that I wouldn't have met. And that's something that we all kind of understand, but I think there's deeper things to that. And then also th things that we can you know, use to, again, better communicate it and better share it with other people. All right, Sarah, what, are, what do you say? I'm going to agree with the strength and resilience. Going back on what I said, I guess I can, I'm pretty open book. I have ulcerative colitis and I also have like no thyroid. So I was hit with like a trifecta of autoimmune diseases. And I think when I said like diabetes went on the back burner, it was because like diabetes was like, what was being cool? Like diabetes was great and everything else. Like my thyroid, would always had dealt with, but like my UC a couple years ago flared, I was really, really sick, like almost lost my colon, like not cool. And like diabetes was kind of just like, it was, it was like, I was just, it was fine. So I was just like, went with it. And um, so I feel like now that my UC is under control and I've gotten to this point of like a lot of like good health and like, I don't, I hate the term bouncing back, but I guess like I'm, I'm back to like back and better than ever. I just, I, I feel like if if I didn't have type one, it wouldn't have like in so many like facets and aspects of my life, I wouldn't be where I am today. So like, I am stronger, I am more resilient, I, I recognize and honor the strength that I have that got me through all of those things. And I think just what type one has taught me about myself, like Jordan was saying, like just about like the inner workings of your body and understanding all of those things um, on a greater level. I think that it's just, it's amazing what I don't give myself credit for because you, you just, you're like, I live this every day. And when you get asked this type of question, like what did type one teach you? You're like, I, I don't hold on. You really have to think about it because it, it's just, it's your normal. So like you're, you're trying to like delve a little deeper into something. You're like, well, it's just me. It taught, it taught me to be me. Um, so I don't, I mean, I've always been really organized. I mean, that's, you know, so I'm like, type one didn't teach me to be organized. <laughs> like, um, but I mean, 
um, I'm a fitness instructor. So I think like, if you're going to talk about strength and resilience, I mean, I'm able to go and teach a 60 minute class and make it happen. And I think that like that in itself is like, I just have like that, like big proud chest of like, I can do this. And if I can do it, anybody can do it. And um, I think that's a, that's a big deal to, to think about. And I think those are the only times I have those glimmers of like super proud, puffy chest, like I'm type one and I can do this. But other times I'm just kind of like, I'm Sarah, you know, like, that's just, that's just, that's just who I am. <laughs> um, like you were said, like, it doesn't, doesn't define me. So, so type one's like, you know, it's like my little, little sidekick. Yeah. So. Exactly. Yeah. It's something that comes up on the show kind of every now and again, but basically the lows are low and they're probably more frequent for us than they are for the average person, but our highs are a lot higher. Like our victories are, I don't want to say sweeter, but like, that's what it is because of how hard it is to do with type one. So without that, like I said, I wouldn't have done all the other bike rides that I had just because it didn't mean as much to me had I not had it. And again, these kind of stories of inspiration can, I think, inspire just about anybody. You don't have to have type one. I think it might mean a little bit more to a type one if they heard it, heard that story or read this story. People, like everyday people, type nuns, type threes can definitely gain something from us. It's it's those incredible unknowns that we won't discover unless we, you know, talk about them. And again, it's going to be mean, it's going to mean something different for different people. So now we talked a lot about the what and the why, now basically the how. So these are just a few tips that I feel like are important to kind of keep in mind uh, while you're telling your story, you're trying to figure your story out um, so that you can tell it to other people. All right. So before you start figuring out what your type one means to you, that's kind of like a major one. And it took me a very long time to do it. I remember. So for the first bike ride, I acknowledged, I kind of like made peace with myself that I had to tell people about it. My type one, because, you know, we're biking, you know, 70 miles a day for 80 days straight something might happen. So they needed to know. But when I, when they started asking me questions about it, I realized how little I knew about type one because I was so really resistant to learn about it for, for those first 12 years. I, I realized like, I didn't really understand the condition. I didn't know why I did the things that I needed to do. I just, I was just doing them for 12 years. Like that just made sense to me. So I kind of got into this habit of acknowledging my type one, but not really accepting it. So I think kind of have to find your place, like, like you have to figure out where you are with your type one, what it means to you, how you relate to it so that you can better communicate it. Again, it's just about understanding what you're saying before you say it. Something that I've noticed on the show and with myself too, is like when you get into those situations where people start asking you about it, you kind of go into information overload. You try to maybe kind of compensate for not feeling like you know a whole lot about it. And so that's what I would do. I would just kind of like dump on them all this information that really didn't make any sense to them because again, they don't have any context for it. It doesn't, highs and lows don't mean anything to them. And I could probably, I probably turned a lot of people off towards like learning more about the condition just because of, I kind of unloaded all of the negative parts of it and not really go into the nuances of it and like what stuff I've learned from it and like the positives of it. So like we were saying earlier, And so that kind of leads into considering your audience. Who are you talking to? What are they interested in? You can definitely connect type one to basically anything. I found my type one through cycling. That's not really a natural connection you can make, but you can, I could probably relate type one better to a bunch of like cross country cyclists that have done it before than I could to, you know, someone that hasn't done that just because I know what that's like and they know what it's like. They just don't know what it's like doing it with type one. So like understanding what your audience is talking about and also trying to relate it to them in a way that makes sense to them. It's kind of like giving, it's like that spoonful of sugar to make the medicine go down kind of thing. There, 
like medical conditions aren't fun to learn about, especially ones that they could potentially get and not know anything about it. So I think the more they know and before they get that diagnosis, if they ever do, the better. And then that way that transition can be a lot smoother for them. And then also being ready for questions. And so when you get into the, I've been in a lot of positions where I just didn't want to answer questions. I didn't like questions about it. Again, I think part of it was because I just didn't, I was reluctant to learn about it. So like a lot of the questions I was stumped by, like I didn't know why I did the things that I did. And so being ready for, being ready for good questions, but also being ready for the bad ones, for like the silly ones. Um, Because again, I think being in a position of not knowing like of ignorance is really hard for people. So that's why you, why you get those people that try to relate really quickly without really thinking about it. It's like, Oh yeah, my grandma has that. Or my grandma's cat has that. My cat died from that. That's where those, those weird outbursts come from because they're trying to relate. They want to make you feel not as outcasted as they think you might feel. So they're trying to relate to you in a way that makes sense to them, which again, the greater public doesn't know anything about type one. They just know diabetes and diabetes again is a weird term that's very loaded with a lot of connotations that we have no control over, but we can definitely recontextualize for them through our experiences and through the way we answer the questions. And then also just primes you up for the conversation. So if you, you know, lead with positive associations and positive examples of how this type one has affected you, it can give them a different idea of what they might think it is. And then also remembering the context matters. So for each of those populations that I was talking about, type ones, type nines, and type threes, the context of our conversations can really influence the way they view type one. During the bike or after the bike ride, it was actually turned into a documentary, like Sarah said, you can watch it on YouTube if you want. And we had a Q&A at the end. And I think, I forget the question, but someone asked, like, what was, what was a funny experience, I think it was. And so like, I went into this big story about how there was four, but Jordan was there, actually. There was five of us. We went to this uh, popular ice cream chain and we, we were getting these ice cream sandwiches. So we were all like being like, oh yeah, we're totally good diabetics. We're going we're gonna to pre-bolus. So we all pre-bolus, not thinking or not expecting that there was going to be a line out the door for this place because it's a famous you know sandwich ice cream sandwich shop so like okay fine whatever it was kind of moving so like we didn't think about it too much but then as the closer we got to the front of the line all of our our uh, low alarms started to go off because of our pre-bolus and we'd been biking we that was in lake tahoe we had biked there from new york city so we were burning you know calories all the time so we were going low and by the time we got to the ordering station everybody's alarms were going off and and we were eating ice cream which you would think would bring your sugar up quickly, but it doesn't because of, you know, we all get it. And so we were all just sitting there with our ice cream sandwiches and, you know, it was just a big mess with everybody going low. We ended up like stealing Oreos from like the, the fixins bar, um, the toppings bar, uh, just so we could, because we all had finished our sandwiches and our, we were still going low. So it was just a big, weird situation. And so I was telling the story to this group of people, this like auditorium of people, and it was a mix of type threes, type ones, and type nuns. And I kept on using terminology like CGMs and highs and lows, and I wasn't giving any context to anybody. So like the people that got it were the type ones in the room. The people that had no idea what was going on were the type nuns in the room, and the type threes in the room were looking at me horrified. Like they did not like the story that I was, that we were all laughing, that we were like, you know technically about to die because like to them, their kids, when they hear those low alarms, it's like, it's danger mode. Like it's danger time. Like we have to fix this now. And we were like, and I'm standing there just talking about how we were laughing and like, you know, we're all low and like eating ice cream and stuff like that. So 
context in that situation would have helped a lot, I think. So giving the mom, there's a lot of moms in the, in the audience too. Um, and they were just looked horrified. Like they did not like the story at all. And I kind of looked at everybody's faces, like didn't understand why nobody else was laughing. So that was like a really weird, awkward moment. But now looking back, I can see there's context for that. Low alarms for type threes mean something very different than they do to me. So like, I'm okay with that. I know my limits. I know how long I can go with a low before I need to treat. And so, yeah. So, and you know, type nines were just completely different planet. They had no idea what I was talking about. Like it didn't make any sense to them at all. So again, like that story probably could have been funny had everybody been on the inside of that. And I think our community can be a little, or not really great at keeping people inside when they don't have any context for all of our terminology and our phrasings. So in that sense, I, that's what I mean by context. So giving people the context of what we mean when we say the things that we say. So like, what do highs mean? What do lows mean? What's a CGM? And like, be ready for those questions. Because again, it's really hard for us to understand what they don't know because we've been doing this for so long, or a lot of us have been doing this for so long. Yeah, so, all right, uh, Jordan, up until this point, I know you've only had it for four years. So how, have you had any trouble over these past four years communicating your type one, do you think? Okay, so... LOL. I don't know how to like keep things to myself. I like kind of am like a very big open book. So there's, there's two things that when you were speaking that it made me think of the first one was when I, when I'm around people that haven't been around me with diabetes before, but they know me pre-diabetes, I'm always so eager to teach them. And then I find myself regretting it because then when my alarm's going off, people are like, Oh my God, like, are you like, are you dying? Like, are you okay? Or then when I'm eating something, they're like, Oh, but should you be eating that? So in that sense, I sort of like, I always, I think over communicate. And then let's say on the other hand, I haven't really done dating with diabetes. So I, this is like something like quarantine has like cut me safe from that. But I find myself like I'll be out at a bar and I'll be meeting someone. And then all of a sudden I'll just like lift up my shorts and be like, yeah, this is my Dexcom and just like blab it out because I don't know. I don't know if I should tell them or if that's like, I'm probably not going to talk to them again. So like maybe they shouldn't know, but I feel like I'm trying to find a balance of maybe not telling my story so much, maybe like holding it back and like, telling it when it needs to be told. And like, not everyone needs to know I have diabetes. I mean, something happens. I have many medical bracelets. Like I'm okay. And also nothing's going to happen because I've got this under control. But yeah, so I feel like I've never had a problem communicating my story. I think that maybe I'm just trying to find when I should be communicating my story a little bit better. Cause not that no one cares, not that not everyone cares, but I just feel like there's a time and a place to talk diabetes and like maybe at a, at a club or a bar isn't the place to do it, but yeah. you'll see me with my Dexcom having a good time. <laughs> yeah. That that's part of it too. So like you can be definitely be very comfortable talking about it, but not being able to discern what information is important is another issue that we have. So like, like I said, like a lot of times when I talk or I used to talk about it, or I feel like I've heard other people talk about it, they just go, kind of go into this like robotic repetition of just like all the facts and like it's like basically a TED talk when really people don't need to leave like your conversations like with a certificate in type one. Like they can just know like the basics of it and just kind of like, again, it's kind of like having a, a elevator speech ready in your back pocket, like knowing what 
what you feel type one is to you in that moment and that time period of your life. And like, you know, giving people like small, you know, pieces of it over the course of your, you know, knowing them again, they don't have to know everything right up front. If they're going to be your friend, they can learn as they go. Um, so yeah, considering your audience and just reading the room, like, you know, like you're saying, so Katie, what do you think? So I have a couple things. Uh, so for a lot of years, I didn't like talking about my type one. Um, I was bullied when I was 12 for an entire year. People didn't like me because I took needles or that was the reason they gave. And so that kind of sent me into a bit of a spiral of hiding my disease and going into washrooms to take my insulin or not taking my insulin. My mom's clients got my insulin for a while. They died. And, uh, you know, checking um, my blood sugars in private and, and just being really private about it, not wanting to go on an insulin pump because I didn't want something attached to me that people would ask about. I wanted to feel, you know, quote unquote normal. Um, but again, when I got into running, that's when things kind of changed for me. Um, and that's when I started opening up a bit about more about my diabetes and my, my, my life with it. Um, I think, I think, so that's when I started talking about it. And I think the challenge is right now is probably, I have a seven-year-old son and um, he, his friends, he, he as well, um, they've started asking about my diabetes and, you know, considering your audience, it's really easy for me to talk to adults about my disease and like break it down for them in a way that they can understand but breaking it down for a seven-year-old, um, you know, he, when I used to uh, check my blood sugars um, using the finger pokes frequently, uh, he would look at my fingers and be like, why do you have so many finger freckles? Um, you know, like that's, that's his mindset, right? Like an adult's not going to see that. So how do I explain a pancreas to, you know, a seven-year-old boy or, you know, like his friends, like last week, his best friend asked me, you know, why I had things attached to me, um, what that was. And I really stumbled um, trying to explain it. And, you know, like I come from a background where I'm supposed to be talking at a, a younger level from the journalism background, right? Like writing things at a level that's easy to understand. But when I tried to explain it to this seven-year-old, I was like, how do I do this? Yeah, definitely. Actually coming up on the show there, I'm going to have a, a mom who has type one, which is something I feel like a perspective that you don't hear a whole lot of. Um, so I'm excited to hear that and have that conversation. So yeah, that's a really good point. How do you talk to your children when you have type one or about your type one? Sarah, what do you think? I think I'm similarly on the side of Jordan. I mean, I'm a really open and like person. So it, I'm more in the consider your audience because I will just do a brain dump and they'll just be like blank faces because they're all type nuns and they're like, I think I'd live my life with more type nuns in my life and the I have family who lives further away and I would probably consider most of them type nuns um, because I was diagnosed when I didn't live in their home. Um, my husband is my like support person. And even I would say like my in-laws and my parents are people who are like still very, they want to be knowledgeable, but it's really hard because it, they don't live it every day and everything like that. So it's, I, and I'm also a, I'm pretty, I have a pretty hard exterior. So I tend to address it in more of a pretty harsh way. 
So I've had to really like soften the blows when someone asks me a question and I immediately like snap back because I don't want to answer all the questions that just to me sound dumb. So it's a sense of just, I've gotten better at it. And it's something that like, I've really like, I don't work on a lot of things, but like, that's definitely something that I've tried to work on a lot in my life. Um, And just being more like more knowledgeable on my end to be able to break it down um, to the people who want to ask the questions. And I do want questions. I just want them to make sense to me. So I can also not feel like I'm giving the improper set. I want them to understand it. So I want it to be like a meaningful conversation. Um, not just a, like, why are you eating that? And what are you doing? And why is your pump beeping? So I think, I think for me, it's more just like using, it's like as much as it is to like get it out to the people and communicating it out. I think it's communicating it in and understanding like, how do, how do I take it and flip it out to like, and like reflect it out of myself? Cause I mean, we can just like blabber on, but how, what is that going to do? <laughs> yeah. And again, it's something, I think we try to give as much information as we can because we feel like we're, it's a captive audience. So we have to get them, you know, hook them while we got them. But for us, at least it, it's taken me 20 years to get to where I am today. And I'm not going to be able to explain all of those 20 years of experience in one night over one conversation to this one type none that I happen to meet again, like it takes us a lifetime to learn this thing. So it's going to take them a couple of days at least to learn something from us. And again, it's something that I think I've been pretty bad at. It's like just not, not acknowledging the fact that they just don't know what I'm talking about and trying to like relate it to them in very specific ways. People learn things differently. That's just kind of the fact of humans. And so being basically the, I think the thing that we need to give ourselves and also people around us is honesty and patience, honesty with ourselves, with our own relationship with our type one patience for those times where we don't feel like we have a handle on it, but then also to people around us, like honest with them, with the way we feel and what things do to us, giving them that context, but then also being patient with them. If they, it takes them a little longer than we would like, especially people that are in the dating scene, like learning, having to introduce this part of yourself to an completely new person that didn't probably didn't really sign up for that kind of thing. Like they weren't expecting it at all. So like those kind of situations are important to have context for and stories for. So, you know, understanding your story before those things happen is really great step towards that. And so basically this is pretty an abstract part of the discussion, basically just different ways that you can tell your story. So like the quote, tell me what it is you plan to do with your one wild and precious life, I think kind of fits into this because we didn't ask for type one, but we have it now. So what are we going to do with it? So like we can do a whole lot of different things. We can, you know, um, resist talking about it, which, you know, I did that for a very long time. I don't recommend it, but it's something that you can do. I feel like if you lean into it and accept it for what it is and try to learn to talk about it a little bit better, you can have a much easier time of it. And so these are just a few examples of ways to talk about it. I think mine, the one I've chose is podcasting. It's something that's pretty easy to do nowadays. Like you literally only need a phone and it does everything for you. You can edit there. And I happen to have, be lucky and had an uncle or have an uncle that has a whole bunch of recording equipment. So I just like borrow all of his stuff. I haven't really had to spend a whole lot of money, but there are also easier ways to do that or like more, less kind of 
less equipment based ones. Like you can journal, you can just story, like write stories for yourself, like figure out what you feel about type one. You can blog, share your story with other people, figuring out how you talk about it. You know, so going to type one meetups and figuring out where you stand with your type one in relation to other people. There's a lot of different ways that we can kind of get in touch with our story. And so that we, that way we can better communicate it to other people. Sharing on, sharing on social media is a huge thing that we do now. But I feel like as of right now, the stories are kind of limited and the faces that you see are kind of all the same. They're like very similar. So we just need, I feel like we just need to have more people talking about their experiences because again, there's uh, room to be inspired by all of them. Yeah. So yeah. So that's my presentation. Thank you for joining me for my TED talk slash slipstream. Do we still have time for a little bit of q and We have most everybody still here. I think <clears throat> let's give everybody an opportunity. It doesn't look like uh, via chat that anybody has uh, any unanswered questions, but if anybody has a question now, uh, feel free to unmute yourself and ask your question. If somebody's asking a question and you still have one while they're asking their question, if you could indicate in chat that you have one and then we can put you in a queue. But uh, yeah, let's, let's go ahead and see. Does anybody have a question before we end the session? Yeah, you can also bring up thoughts so that they don't have to be specifically questions. And it can be thoughts or comments. Yeah, thoughts or comments. Yeah. Hello, can you see me? Hello. All right. Yeah. You brought up a good thing earlier when somebody does kind of like throw throw away just tidbits that they have in their head, like can you eat that or whatnot? How do you personally or in generally decide when is the time to do the brain dump or when is uh, or how much less do you give them to kind of like keep them at bay or something like that? Yeah, that's funny. I was never very good at answering those kinds of questions. I would get very snippy very quickly. Like I did not handle those. I remember one person says like, I was grabbing Skittles specifically. I think I was low and I was eating them. And then she very, you know, very like a stink eye kind of way. Like, should you be eating that? And then it's like, and I very quickly said, should you be eating that? And so I got very defensive very quickly. So I would not suggest doing that. And to prepare for those kinds of questions, acknowledge that that's basically the, the, the frame of reference that non-type nuns are working with. Like they don't understand what type one is, let alone diabetes. Diabetes is a very loaded, context heavy word in the US, I think. And just people just don't know what it is. And so I think understanding that and just being very accepting of the fact that people just don't know what they're talking about. And again, a lot of those comments I feel come from a place of caring. Like it's, they're trying to watch out for you. They think if you eat this thing or that thing, it might kill you because of what they know about type one. They don't know that Skittles can be medicinal sometimes. And it's, again, it's something that it's a very good, I think it's a good learning opportunity to say like, actually food is different. Type one is different than what you think it is. And just kind of giving them little, little snippets of that. And again, like you're going to have a lot of meals with these people. So like, it's probably better to address those smaller questions, like sooner rather than later, because you don't want to have to deal with those questions every time, which again, I think I would shut down as opposed to like opening up. And I think I paid the price for it in that I kept on having to answer those questions instead of just kind of like addressing them head on and explaining what food in this case means to type one. So again, it's kind of like read your audience. If they're not, if they're just doing it to be, you know, mean or a dick, like they're clearly not in a position that they want to learn anything, but you can, you can tell them like, that's actually not what that means. 
again, a lot, a lot of the, I found over the course of the show is a lot of type one questions mean, or, or answered by it depends. So like, again, it kind of depends on the situation, the person that you're talking to and what you feel they can handle in terms of information about how you live with your type one. Okay. And we have Holly who'd like to share something. Hey, well, no, I just really quick wanted to share. Um, it's really interesting to hear about your story about biking across the United States. Like that's so cool. I've biked across Nebraska a couple of times. And the first time I did that, I mean, I didn't even, no idea. I thought that like I could do that. My friend was a, a cyclist and she was like, you should come with me for a ride. Like, um, we're going to go out on the highway. And I was like, first, okay, I don't really ride on the highway. I'm nervous. And secondly, she was like, we'll probably go like, you know, about 60 miles. And I was like, are you kidding? Like I sleep in, I'm not an early morning person. Like this is probably like, I'm going to slow you down. But like I started and my goal was like, okay, 30 miles. But once you do 30, you can do 60. And like, you'd be so surprised on what you could do. And I, and she knew me, but I was like, listen, diabetes is probably going to slow me down a little bit. Like I've never done anything like that. But once I did that, I was so proud of myself and it felt great getting exercise in the morning. What a great thing. And then rode across Nebraska a couple of times, had ups and downs with that. Like, I think one time we had a headwind and I was like, man, this is just really super rough. And I was like 390. Yeah. I hadn't checked. I don't even know what I was thinking. I hadn't checked before the stop before way out of my, we had to stop for like an hour and a half good friend. She stayed with me through all of it, but it was a great experience and uh, it was a great ride. Something I never thought I would do, but um, those things are celebrations for sure. Yeah, definitely. I've ridden across Nebraska too, and I loved it. It was my favorite state and Nebraska is a very popular state to bike across because it's so flat and it was, yeah, I loved it. But again, yeah, like you mentioned, it's the type one adds something to our story. It's not the whole story. It's not even a chapter. It's a part of our story. And so it can definitely color things a little bit differently. And so like things like that, like great, huge accomplishments that we, that were difficult, we admit that and are harder because of our type one are more meaningful at the end of it because of the hardship that we went through to go to accomplish these things. So yes, definitely. I understand what it's like to bike across Nebraska. Thank you. And we have Liz who has a question. Hi, thanks so much for this session. I really like this idea. I'm thinking about how I can use it to not really tell my story necessarily like on social media or something, but more with the people I live with and spend time with and kind of how can I use this on a smaller scale almost. So my question was sort of in the beginning, you talked about how diabetes changes over time and our relationship with it changes over time. And I was wondering if maybe you could just give a couple examples. I know you talked about maybe like the first 12 years, you didn't exactly acknowledge it, but can you talk a little more about kind of the changes you've noticed for yourself and maybe like on a smaller scale, like by weeks or months or something, you know, like something smaller scale. Um, yeah, I think so. What I meant by changing with us over the course of having it, I kind of, I think I meant more along the lines of like symptoms and like just the management of it. So like, I remember towards the beginning, I would have a lot of visual symptoms of lows, basically. Like I would see double for a long, like a couple of years. And then all of a sudden just went away. Like I can get to 50 now and my eyesight is perfectly fine. But back then I would get to like uh, 
60 or something or 70 and double vision. Like it was just crazy. Um, and it was, so again, I just didn't really think anything of it because I was the only type one that I knew and I didn't have any context outside of that. So like that, but my eyes just go funny when I go low. So like, that's, I just have to deal with it. And over the course of that, like my, you know, ratios change and stuff like that. So like, and I think if you go like even smaller scales, like week to week, the whole idea that if like what I do today doesn't really mean it'll work tomorrow kind of thing. So like for the longest time, I felt like I figured out the pizza, you know, my pizza algorithm, like I know what to do exactly when I have two slices of pizza from this one place. And the one time that it didn't work, I like, I got really annoyed with myself. Like I was kicking myself and it's like, why didn't it work this time? And again, it's kind of, you have to remember like, this is going to change. Like there's a lot of, there's so many variables in our lives that we just don't have any idea of. So we can't really control for them. So again, it's just kind of like giving ourselves that kind of patience and honesty is like, why are my sugars where they are now? What did I do to influence that? What could I do next time to be better about it? And so forth. So again, I think getting a better relationship with your type one helps with that, but then also just kind of listening to your body and noticing those changes and stop and not trying to fight them like I used to do when I would get super high after a bowl of cereal and go to bed, I would wake up super high and just like, why is this? This is weird. My, my sugars hate me kind of thing. And I just wouldn't acknowledge like the things that I was doing that I could avoid or um, account for better. So I think that's what I mean by subtle changes. And over the course of your life, it's, those are probably bound to change. Thank you. And Maria wants to know if there will be any type one rights in the future. You'd have to ask Beyond Type 1 about that. So Beyond Type 1 is the organization that I did the ride through. So I, I came to them with this idea to put it together, a team of riders. And um, it was a pretty, it was a really big undertaking for them. They were very, they're pretty small relatively. They were smaller back then than they are now, but they were, they did talk about wanting to do it again. It's just a matter of when is the thing. So I would suggest uh, email bombing them um, that you want to do it, that you're interested in doing it. Cause I would definitely do it again. I have the route planned out and everything. I want to go to Seattle, the biggest needle in the country. I feel like that would be funny. Okay. And, uh, that's it from the chat. Uh, does anybody have any final questions or comments before we go? We'll have a couple in chat. Does anybody want to ask their question? Yeah. So my question was any experience or advice for trying to communicate with people who don't seem to want to care about the fact that you have type one, like people that should care. Uh, yeah, it's again, it kind of, I would suggest trying to figure out where that might come from. Like I, I'm assuming that it might be family. And I think at least in terms of what I think of family, not accepting it. I think we on the type one side can forget that, these kinds of diagnoses can be traumatic for them in that like they see this person and their family that they care about a lot that's suddenly sick for no reason. They don't look sick, but they are sick and it can be a lot for people to take in and accept. And so, and I think it might be internally kind of they're, they're projecting. So like they don't think that they could get, they don't think that that could happen to them. So they kind of refuse to acknowledge it in you. That's just one kind of example of it. And it could be something completely different. Maybe they're just not a good person and they don't care. That's another thing we can, our stories can be perfect. They can explain it exactly the way a type nine could understand it. But at the end of the day, they have to kind of, there's a, there's a certain 
level of effort that they have to put into it too. If they don't want to learn, they're not going to learn. So like, I think you have to choose your battles. If you find, if you run into those people and you feel like they're just reluctant to learn, you've tried everything, you can't find a way to relate it to them in a way that they accept and like process it, then you can kind of just, that's just who they are and kind of acknowledge that and try to figure out maybe why they don't want to accept it the way you feel like you need them to. But again, also letting them know that they, that their reluctance to do that, how it affects you. Cause again, they don't know what you're thinking. I think a lot of our type one uh, understanding is internal. So like we know how it affects us, but, and we kind of assume that other people do, especially the longer you have it. Uh, but again, they don't have that context. So it's definitely, you know, you have to choose your battles. Some people just want to be willing to learn. They don't want, they don't care. And that's kind of something that we would need to accept and learn to deal with. There's, there's definitely going to be people that do. So like, you're not going to be alone in this. So that's kind of, again, it's another, it depends, it depends answer. Okay. And we have um, time for maybe one more question. Uh, Nia, did you want to ask one more question? Sure. Back again. How do you train for something like that? Like uh, doing a long bike ride? So the, when I did these rides, I did it through organizations. So they had very detailed training, like schedules, I guess you could call it. So like for cycling, basically cycling, it's all about getting in the seat in the saddle, getting on your bike. So like you don't necessarily train for 4,000 miles. You train for like 50 or 60, and then you just kind of keep on doing that. The first two weeks are always the hardest, but eventually your body gets used to it and you can do 80 mile days, five days in a row. And then there's also like a lot of cross training conditioning, but again, it's, you can't really train for the 4,000 miles. You can do as many as you can. I, I made a requirement for people to do 1500 miles before the ride. So they, the team was told that they're on the team in November and we left in May, June, uh, June. So they had that six months to get those 15 mile, 1500 miles on the road. So not like on a, you know, spin bike because spin bikes and actual bikes are very different. Uh, yeah. So again, it's just kind of putting in the time and getting used to sitting on a, on a saddle. It's not so much the pedaling, it's the sitting. So that's actually probably the harder part to get used to because you're literally sitting on your butt for 10 hours a day. It's a very active sit, but yeah, you're sitting. So you, your body gets used to it in those first two weeks. The first two weeks are always the hardest, but you know, you get acclimated to it and it's, it's, many days one after the other it's not all 4,000 it's hard to conceptualize 4,000 mile ride in like the 80 days or 70 days that it takes uh, but it's definitely doable I think that anybody could do it and that's a lot of the rides that I did that's kind of their their uh their their motto is that anybody can do this we, they just have to like put the work in prior to the ride and then just keep it up during the ride and it can definitely be done and then like the team that I did it with 20 type ones we were able to do it. It was definitely tough. And, but we all knew we all had type one. So I think that made it easier for me at least. And, um, Jordan's in the, in the room. I don't know if you want to add anything. Jordan was a teammate. Yeah. As far as like what I have is just time in the saddle. Like you said, time in the saddle over everything. It's just, you gotta, you gotta sit down and, and get used to that. Cause it's really the, uh, just, just being in the elements all day more than, than the leg strength really like you build that over time but but getting used to just being on the bike and, and being out in the in the conditions and dealing with with the environment is the the most important part 
it's a lot of fun though. It's not just biking. We, we biked in groups and we stopped and like, you know, got Sonic and stuff like that. So it's a lot of fun. It's, it's a lot more fun than work. I think I, at least I, that, I've done it three times. So I like something about it. Okay. I think uh, we're at the end here. I just want to really thank uh, Walt as well as our panelists, uh, Sarah and Katie and Jordan and all the participants. Thank you very much for being here. There is a link um, in this, uh, in the chat uh, where we're going to ask you to please complete uh, the survey. Um, and other than that, thank you very much for being here. You want to say anything else before we close Walt? No, thank you all so much for joining me. Sorry, I went a little longer than I expected. But yeah, communicating the experience is something that I'm really interested in doing. So if you would like to be a guest on the show, you can definitely find me the information at the end of the slides. Um, find it on Instagram, you can be a guest, you can, you know, uh, listen to the show, like it's, it's there for all of us. And I really and even ideas for future episodes. So I would love to get more input from the community because again, it's 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 all of our stories together that I think are going to make the most impact in sharing our experience and letting people know what they need to know and how they can support us, but also how we can support them and um, and inspire them with our stories. Because again, I think Type One has it lends itself to a lot of really beautiful, amazing stories that we are just we just need to find and share with everybody else. Yeah, thank you, Walt. Thank you, everybody. <laughs> that was great. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks, Thanks, Walt. And that's the episode and the end to season three of Ask Me About My Type 1. Before I wrap the season up, I want to give a big thank you to all of you for sticking with me through these past three seasons and for joining in on the conversation. I hope all of these different perspectives on this thing we call Type 1 have been able to give you some sort of insight into your own and made sharing your Type 1 story with the Type Nuns in your lives just a little bit easier. I also wanted to say that this has probably been my favorite season so far because of the huge realization it helped me come to. I now know how narrow the view on Type 1 I was giving was, but now I have a very clear idea of how I'm going to open up the conversation for Season 4. This workshop is about the power that I believe all of our Type 1 stories have, and in Season 4, I want to hear as many new stories as I can. Because yes, Type 1 affects our lives, but our lives also affect our type one. I wanna hear from different gender perspectives and queer perspectives and cultural perspectives and from different types of diabetes because I don't know how many of you know this yet, but we're not living in just a type one and type two world anymore. I'm very excited for what's to come on Ask Me About My Type One and I'd love for you to be a part of it all. So please let me know if you're interested in sharing your story on the show or letting me know about the stories you're most interested in hearing. All right, everyone, that's it for me and for the season. Thank you all again so much for tuning in. See you all in season four. Bye. <laughs>